and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 58th episode of the Nauticast entitled Enter the Void, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Eddard 15 in which George R.R. R. Martin does his best Shakespeare pastiche in Ned's final, is it his final, Emmett? Does it have to be his final chapter? But it's his final chapter and that's not going to make it, man, is he? Reading this chapter is like, you know, watching the instant replay on a... In a game, your favorite team loses and just rewinding again and again in hopes they'll make it this time, but sadly they won't. And speaking of Shakespeare, we're very excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Lauren, a.k.a. Shakes of Thrones, a.k.a. Shakespeare of Thrones. Hello, I am Lauren, a.k.a. Shakespeare of Thrones. Uh, I do talk a lot about Shakespeare's influence in A Song of Ice and Fire on Twitter, where you can find me at Shakes of Thrones. I have to say, you guys, I just love this podcast. I've been Aww. listening since the beginning, and I am incredibly honored to be here. I was so so excited when you asked me to be on. This is by far my favorite Ned chapter in the book. Probably probably tied with Daenerys 10 for my favorite chapter overall in A Game of Thrones, and I'm super excited to talk about it. Well, we're so happy to have you on. We're a big fan of your work as well, and we were super excited to talk with you about this chapter, not only because you're a big fan of it, because you've written about it so well before. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to get my learn on again, I feel like. So I feel like whenever we have guests on, it's always like me being the guy and the person on the sidelines being like, yeah, that's a really great point. Can, please continue. Please continue on with this really great point that you're going on with. Well, that's why we have guests. Absolutely. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warren of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Chancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragon Scone. I'm still going to go with Dragon Scone until I get corrected. So feel free to correct me, but I'm going to go with Dragon Scone until I'm corrected. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Baby the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorus. Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane. And Lord James, the gym that was promised. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. And as we say in all episodes, we will be potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So before we get to our question this week, I wanted to make a quick announcement that I will be attending Ice and FireCon in a few weeks. That's the weekend of April 26th through the 28th. That's at Deer Creek Lodge in Ohio. It's just a great weekend, a great convention that's been going on for quite a few years. It's the, it's the original Song of Ice and Fire convention, and they do great panels and uh, great events, and it's just a great time to hang out with people who love these books. I've been to it for a couple years, and I'm really excited to be going back. So if you haven't checked that out before, check out tickets at iceandfirecon.com. Are, are you going, Lauren, by the way? Yes, I am. It'll be my first time going. I went to... Woohoo! Yeah, I went to Con of Thrones for the first time uh, this past summer and had a whole bunch of fun there. So I'm definitely looking forward to Ice and Fire Con, my very first one. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, if it's as fun as it was back in 2017, which is the premier Ice and Fire Con, because that's when I was at, uh, it, you guys will have a lot, a lot of fun there. So check out Emmett and Lauren and all sorts of other people, Chloe and Eliana from the Girls Gone Canon podcast. LML, who we've had as a guest several times, will be there. Yeah. 
it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna be looking from afar at the Twitter pictures as they come filtering in, as I'm probably you know working and doing the Lord's work as I often do in my life's pursuits. You'll be like Stannis looking over the painted table, scowling <laughs> at all of us with your own little Truman show. Yeah. But yeah, it's going to be a great time. So once again, go to iceandfirecon.com and check out their events and their tickets. If you can't come this year, definitely put a marker in for next year because it's it's my favorite convention. So it's going to be great. I can't wait to see you there, Lauren. going to be a good time. I'm excited for it. Excellent. So our question this week comes from Sir JB, who asks, if you could only read either the winds or the spring and never never learn even in the broadest strokes what happens in the other one, which one would you choose? You got to choose one. No take my life instead option for you. <laughs> What's it going to be, lady and gentlemen? Stannis victory over the Boltons or the bittersweet ending of the series? TikTok. Oh, that, sir, is a brutal question. And so I'm going to cowardly pass it off to our guest. Lauren, <laughs> oh, no. if, you could, if you could only read Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring and never learn, even in the broadest strokes, what happens in the other one? I which one agree. This would is you choose? A, this is a tough question. It is brutal and it is cruel. Um, circumstances aside, and considering its unique abstract world where I have a choice between the Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring and can only read one, even though it's tempting <laughs> to say Dream of Spring to know how all the pieces fall, um, in the end, I'm, I'm actually going to have to go with Winds of Winter. Um, and reasoning is, you know, I am particularly interested in some of the storylines. Um, like Brienne is my favorite character. I'm, hmm. I'm particularly interested in how things go down with her and Lady Stoneheart and Jamie. It would be heartbreaking to miss that. Um, but even aside from that, I, you know, I would say it wouldn't even be satisfying for me to read A Dream of Spring without reading The Winds of Winter. Mm. Uh, Agreed. I mean, I'm at the point in my enjoyment of A Song of Ice and Fire where I'm more invested in the journey than the ultimate end. It's, I don't know, skipping ahead would be like listening to a great symphony for the first time and thinking, oh, I'm going to go ahead to the last four measures because I have to know what happens. And then you're like skipping over all this really rich development. And, you know, why would you do that anyway? Um, Mm. I mean, with a Song of Ice and Fire is just the unfolding of this great piece of literature, which is the most enjoyable thing to me. But what do you guys think? I mean, agreed. I think that's what gives a lot of great moments in the text its resonance is the build up to it. I and mean, we've talked about that before with Ned's execution, with the Red Wedding. So many little interlocking pieces have to come together to make those events really satisfying. And there is a lot of specific stuff I want to see in wins. You know, Euron's attack on Old Town is something I've been loving to see for a long time. All the Stannis stuff at Winterfell and his, his decision to sacrifice Shireen is probably going to happen at the climax of wins. So I'd hate to miss that stuff. <laughs> and yeah, it would, it, it would just feel a little empty without the connective tissue, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my, I'm more basic than that. I mean, I just want to see Stannis fight and win in the Battle of Ice. I mean, honestly. If we're, I know, buddy. If, I know. If, if we're being honest here, I mean, I, I also think like a dream of spring. And look, I'm, I'm going to break the rules of this question because I can. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts <laughs> of this podcast. We're gonna it's get, not a democracy. It's not. And we're going to get a version of a dream of spring, at least in season eight of Game of Thrones. Right. So in a few That's weeks, true. we'll have something resembling what's going to happen in dream of spring, especially considering that. When George R. R. Martin talked with David Benioff and Dan Weiss back in 2013 about the ending to A Song of Ice and Fire, he had very clear ideas about the end states of all of these major characters. And he only kind of had the broad strokes about how he was actually going to get there to get to that that end point. So for me, I'm taking the best of both worlds. I'm going with the wins winner. So I get Stannis winning the Battle of Ice, which is going to be glorious. And I'm also, go- <laughs> I'm also going <laughs> with... Uh, uh, 
I'll get a version of A Dream of Spring in season eight, which will likely closely mirror what George R. R. Barton has in mind for the end of the book series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well and I said, think, sir. I, I think that, um, I don't know, there's a, a different version of this question that we could ask where I would have a different answer. Um, you know, would you, and you would have to go back a few seasons in Game of Thrones for this question to make sense, but would you rather skip over a season um, or watch it all as it unfolds or just go straight to season eight to know what happens? And I don't know, like if we were at season, waiting for season seven here, I think I might choose let's get season eight. Um, Hmm. or especially if we had to choose, if there's a season that, well, it's all difficult because we know (laughs) in hindsight, which seasons were better than others, but. And the show just changed so much. I mean, if you go back to season one, as I've been doing recently, just the look and the budget of everything feels like such a completely different show in the first couple seasons than it does now. So it's, it's, it's interesting how it's evolved that way. And the the, the book series has evolved, of course, too, in 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 a different way. It's gotten angrier and less popular. But it's I love true. It. When you look back at season one and season two, you see a show that doesn't have the same multi-hundred million dollar budget for every single season of the show. So they had to get creative with how they were going to portray certain events. Like Tyrion gets knocked out before the Battle of the Green Fork. And we have, they end up opting for a lot of kind of these scenes where they're in dialogue. And this is something we kind of brought up in our episode about our predictions for season eight. But one of the episodes apparently for season eight is supposed to be almost play-like in its aspect. And it's not going to be these great set-piece battles and stuff like that. It's going to, in my opinion, most likely resemble things that we saw in seasons one and two, which are uh, quickly becoming my top two favorite seasons. Although season three still I am here for that. I am so here for that. Especially the last teaser that they had, which didn't have any words at all. It was just images of swords in the snow and haunting music in the background. I'm like, I, I am really here for that. Agreed. I feel the way about Game of Thrones at this point, uh, similar to how I feel about the Star Wars prequels. Like, this is great as long as no one's talking. Just like, <laughs> let me get lost in the visuals and the overall structure and the themes, but no more dialogue, please, because the specific word choices you're making are horrible. Yeah. But Bring as you were saying about the, the play-like structure uh, of that one episode we're going to get in Season 8, and I think that, that dovetails perfectly with the chapter under discussion today, because it, too, is very play-like, one of the reasons we wanted to have Lauren on for it. Absolutely. So, it's kind of funny, back in August, I had said that Catelyn 5 from A Game of Thrones was my favorite chapter in this book, and I have to apologize, I have a major update to my rankings in A Game of Thrones chapters. I refuse to drum roll, so don't Come even... on, come on, you got to drum roll. <laughs> no, no I have dignity, so... <laughs> Well, Catelyn 5 is a fantastic, wonderful, moody, scenic chapter, but it's now my second favorite chapter in A Game of Thrones. Eddard 15 is bar none the best chapter in A Game of Thrones, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise until I change my mind. Danny 10 is really good, though. It's it's just really good. I don't know. Sansa, it's, it's Sansa 2, but you guys are about to have incorrect <laughs> opinions. And on that note... Here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Eddard 15. Ned Stark is alive. The crowd goes wild. He's going to make it this time, guys, right? I could feel it. No? Why are you shaking your head, Emmett? The story is kind of going to remain the same, and this is a reread podcast? Sorry to bring you down to earth, buddy, but it's kind of my job. Oh, no. But for the time being, Ned is alive. Yes, yet he's buried. There's a lot of that buried imagery in this chapter. The floor he lies on smells like Littlefinger. It's the piss. But it was dark. Too dark. No windows, no bed, not even a bucket to piss into. Ned remembers the glimpses of what he last saw before being tossed into this dungeon. A door of splintered wood. 
pale red stone festooned with patches of nitrate. And because I'm not super smart and I don't read, I had to look up what nitrate actually is. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Turns out it's potassium nitrate or saltpeter. You learn something every day. Thanks, George. But once Ned had been tossed into this room, the door had been shut and the darkness was complete. Total. He could have been blind or dead, buried with his king. He talks to Robert himself, both. He remembers when Robert told him that the king eats and the hand takes the shit, but Robert had gotten it wrong. The king dies and the hand is buried. Like I said, lots of burial imagery so far in this chapter. I wonder if that's kind of like speaking to something that's going to happen later in this book. Nah. And that brings us to the question, where exactly is Ned? Well, he's in the deepest bowels of the Red Keep dungeon, known as the Black Cells. So, as we were talking back in A Game of Thrones Catelyn 4, the castle itself was designed by Maegar the Cruel, who had all of the stonemasons who had helpfully, kindly constructed the castle for him murdered, because Maegar the Cruel is terrible, so as to keep the secrets of the Red Keep secret. And then Ned turns his attention to the people who need a good damning, and there's a lot of them. He damned them all. Littlefinger, Janos Slint and his gold cloaks, the Queen, the Kingslayer, Pycelle and Varys, and Sir Barristan, even Lord Renly. Good job, Ned. Robert's own blood who had run when he was needed most. Yet in the end, he blamed himself. Fool, he cried to the darkness. Thrice damned blind fool. In the darkness, Ned sees Cersei and her golden hair telling him when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Ned had tried playing the game. He lost. And the price was the lives of his men. And then Ned turns his attention to his daughters. If he could, he would weep for them, but he's a Stark of Winterfell, and the tears wouldn't come. His rage and anger freeze hard inside of him. And just pause here. Again, George, if you would, please do the unpublished writers a quick favor and not be so good at writing, okay? Again, nothing personal. It's not something that I'm concerned about necessarily, but, you know, just, just saying. Just putting it out there. Thank you. Anyways, Ned's leg still throbs in pain, but it wasn't as painful when he kept still. So he tried not to move. Ned sleeps and wakes, days running into each other to the point where he's not sure what day it is or whether it's day or night outside. His thoughts turn to the one woman who has done only one thing wrong in her entire life. The thought of Cat was as painful as a bed of nettles. He wondered where she was, what she was doing. He wondered whether he would see her again. And it hurts me in my deep places to report to you, Ned, that no, you're, you're never going to see Catelyn again. Sorry about that. Hours turn into days, and as time becomes imprecise, the silent remains Ned's constant. He begins talking to himself to hear something. He thinks about Renly and Stannis raising armies to take King's Landing. Or, or maybe Harwin and the nascent brother without banners would march on King's Landing too. Maybe even the beloved Catelyn Stark was raising the north, Riverlands and Vale to march. But above all of these, quote, castles of hope built in the dark, as George so eloquently writes it, and it's really good wording, he thinks most of Robert. He imagines him as the boy of his youth, tall, handsome. Muscle like a man's fancy, like a horn god. You know, kind of, you know the bit by now. Put it away, Ned. <laughs> yeah, right? Ned imagines Robert laughing about how it all came to this. Ned in the dungeon and Robert killed by a pig. I failed you, Ned thought. He could not say the words. I lied to you, hid the truth. I let them kill you. Well, according to fantasy Robert, Ned was a stiff-necked fool too proud to listen. Honor isn't going to shield or help you, Ned. And then, of course, the cracks ripple across Fantasy Robert's face, and he morphs into none other than that motherfucker, Lord Littlefinger, with his grinning, mocking smile. 
Littlefinger's mouth opens and its lies turn into pale gray moths. And oh, oh my God, George, I really, I literally just watched Silence of the Lamb for the first time. Are you speaking to me right here, right now, from across time and distance? Probably. The first time that they came for him, Ned was half asleep. They burst in, flooding the room with light and thrust a jug of water at Lord Stark. Ned had gulped the water down, but when he had started to ask how long he'd been down in the dungeons, the jailer had wrenched the water jug from Ned and told him to shut up. When Ned tried to ask after Arya and Sansa, the jailer had slammed the door shut. Ned lowers his face back down to the straw, and now he's nose blind to all the little fingering smells coming from the straw. And if going nose blind, being left alone in the dark, the starvation or his crushing guilt weren't bad enough, Ned begins to lose track of when he's awake or asleep. And so a memory vivid as a dream creeps up on Ned. Ned was 18 at Heron Hall. And oh shit, hold up, Ned's going to tell the story of the attorney of Heron Hall. Buckle up. Well, Ned was a very young man and he experiences the memory in vivid color, smell, and sound. The deep green grass, the pollen on the wind, warm days, cool nights, the sweet taste of wine, Brandon's laughter. He remembers Robert's courage and then Jamie receiving the white cloak of the Kingsguard. All six members of the Kingsguard, Oswald Went, Gerald Hightower, and the rest, were there to welcome Jamie into their ranks. And then the jousting had begun. Strangely, the day had belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen. He wore his black armor with rubies weaved into the breastplate, the same armor he would die in on the trident. And the crown prince had knocked Brandon Stark, Bronzion Royce, and even Sir Arthur Dane into the mud. And finally, Rhaegar had knocked Barristan Selmy off his horse in the final tilt. It was all jokes and joy until... Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Ilya Martell, to lay the Queen of Beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. Ned tries to reach out to the roses, but he feels the thorn beneath the petals and the thorns cut into his skin. Ned wakes in the dark, but the memories remain. Promise me, Ned, his sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. Ned weeps. God save me, I'm going mad. But the gods, because they're assholes, don't answer him. Days pass, and Ned begins counting the days by the times that a jug of water is brought to him. He keeps trying to ask for any information from the jailers, but he only gets kicked and told to shut the fuck up as his responses. And now Ned was hungry. He tries begging for food, but even as he begs, he thinks that Cersei doesn't want him dead, lest he probably would have been killed in the throne room, right? Yeah, probably. Cersei wants Ned alive, albeit weak and starving. And then another rattle. The door creaks open. Ned asks for food, but a somewhat familiar voice responds with, Wine? This man was a different man than the ones who had brought Ned water before. The voice tells Ned to drink, and as he does, Ned realizes who it is. Varys? But this Varys doesn't resemble the one Ned remembers. The eunuch's plump cheeks were covered with a dark stubble of beard. Ned felt the coarse hair with his fingers. Varys had transformed himself into a grizzled turnkey, reeking of sweat and sour wine. How did you... what sort of magician are you? A thirsty one, Varys retorts. Varys tells Ned to drink again, but Ned is suspicious, wondering if it's the same poison as the one that Robert had drank. But no, it's not. Varys takes the wineskin from Ned and takes a gulp, doing his whole it's no more poisonous than most wine bit. He gives the wine back to Ned and Ned drinks the dregs. He nearly pukes right then and there. All men must swallow the sour with the sweet, Varys says. High lords and eunuchs alike, your hour has come, my lord. Ned asks after his daughters, and he's relieved to find out that they're alive. Arya is somewhere, no one really knows where, and Sansa is still betrothed to Joffrey. 
Varys had been present when Sansa had asked that Ned's life be spared, and Varys tells Ned that he would have been touched by her courage. But then Varys leans forward. I trust you realize you are a dead man, Lord Stark. Ah, how quickly the visage changes. While Ned had previously convinced himself that Cersei wouldn't kill him, and he reiterates this point to Varys. Besides, Catelyn has Tyrion, right? Ah, no, sorry about that. She doesn't. Okay, well, that sucks. Then why not just kill me, Ned says. Ah, no, Varys doesn't want Ned to die. At least not yet. He's got Aegon to consider, but that comes in a dance of dragons. But Ned is unfazed. God damn it, Varys, you just stood there and didn't do a damn thing when all my men were killed. You didn't even say a word. And what again? I seem to recall that I was unarmed, unarmored, and surrounded by Lannister swords. Besides, Varys was only playing his mummer's role. Everyone has a part to play. Varys' particular part, as the Master whispers, is to be sly and obsequious and without scruple. A courageous informer would be as useless as a cowardly knight. Ned looks Varys over and asks if the unit could free him. Well, yeah, he could, but he won't. Okay then, will Varys deliver a letter for Ned? Uh, sure. So long as Varys reads it first and decides whether he wants to send or not, as best fits his interests. You understand, of course, Ned, right? <sighs> yeah, Ned understands. But really, what are you after, Varys? Peace, he replies. And I guess somehow I think Varys means it in his own twisted way sort of thing. But we'll talk about that later on. Varys didn't want Robert dead, according to Varys, and had tried protecting him from his enemies. Too bad Robert's got shitty friends, though, who would tell Cersei that they knew the truth of Joffrey's birth. Why are you so dumb, Ned? Well, first off, Varys, Ned isn't dumb. But secondly, Ned did it because he was giving Cersei mercy. Varys understands musing how few honest people there are left in Westeros. When I see what honesty and honor have won you, I understand why. But let's move on, Vars. Can we talk about Lancel and his role in killing Robert? Sure, he gave Robert the wine. Cersei had told Lancel that it was Robert's favorite vintage, but it wouldn't have mattered anyways. Robert was a man marked for death. If it wasn't the wine, it would have been a fall from a horse or a snake bite. But beyond that, it wasn't any of those things that really did Robert in. It was not the wine that killed the king. It was your mercy. Ned bitterly asks the gods to forgive him, and Varys responds that if there are gods, they'll likely forgive Ned. Besides, Cersei was going to knock Robert off sooner rather than later. She needed him gone to deal with his brothers. They are quite a pair, Stannis and Renly, the Iron Gauntlet and the Silk Glove. Oh, and Ned, you really should have backed Littlefinger's plan to support Joffrey's ascension to the Iron Throne here. What? Ned is stunned. How in the world did you know that, Varys? Well, that doesn't matter, Ned. Don't worry about that right now. What matters is that Cersei is coming tomorrow. She's afraid of Ned and her enemies are all around her. And did Varys mention that Rob is marching down the neck with a northern army at his back? Well, shit, Varys, why didn't you fucking mention that sooner? Rob's only a boy. Yeah, he's a boy, but he's a boy with an army. Still a boy, though, because what's really kind of giving Cersei sleepless nights is Stannis. Stan okay, I, I gotta stop doing that. His claim is the true one. He is known for his prowess as a battle commander, and he is utterly without mercy. There is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. <sighs> Varys, love you, but you are so fucking wrong, and yet sort of somewhat right at the same time. Cannot wait for a Clash of Kings. <clears throat> Anyhow, Cersei fears that Tywin and Jaime will be dealing with the River Lords and Rob while Stannis lands proclaims himself king, and then he'll march on King's Landing and kill Joffrey. No doubt Cersei is more concerned with Joffrey's head than her own. Stannis Baratheon is Robert's heir, Ned said. The throne is his by rights. I would welcome his ascent. And just so that every bad and ugly opinion holder hears it again, let me now reread that Ned supports Stannis. <clears throat> Stannis Baratheon is Robert's true heir, Ned said. The throne is his by rights. I would welcome his ascent. Okay, 
Just got that off my chest. Feeling better now. Varus says that Cersei ain't going to be too happy if Ned says that to her. But besides, even if Stannis wins, only your beheaded head will be present to welcome his ascent to the Iron Throne. Sansa had begged so sweetly for your life, you idiot. Don't throw it away. No. Fuck that, Ned sort of says. He ain't going to serve Cersei. She killed his men. Well, don't serve Cersei then, Varys replies. Serve the realm instead. Confess your treason, proclaim Joffrey as king, send your son and his army back home, and keep Cersei's secrets. Then you can take the black and hang out with Jon Snow on the wall. The thought of Jon filled Ned with a sense of shame and sorrow too deep for words. If only he could see the boy again. Sit and talk with him. And, Ned, what exactly do you want to talk with him about? You know, hmm? Is, is there something on your mind at this point in time that you might want to say to John, kind of revealing something about his background heritage? Probably nothing. Well, Ned's leg starts to flare up in pain again, and he asks Varys if he's working with Littlefinger. Oh, no, Ned. Varys ain't working with Littlefinger. He'd sooner wed the black goat of Kohor. Nice. Nice. Sure, he feeds Littlefinger choice whispers, much as he feeds Cersei choice whispers, too, all to convince these two that he's their man. Ah, well, Ned has some thoughts about this, and I'll read the passage in full because it's a personal favorite of mine. And just as you let me believe that you are mine, tell me, Lord Varus, who do you truly serve? Varus smiled thinly. Why the realm, my good lord? How could you ever doubt that? I swear it by my lost manhood. I serve the realm, and the realm needs peace. But do you actually serve the realm, Varus? Do you? Do you really serve the realm and peace? No, not really. But we're getting distracted, Ned. What's your answer when Cersei comes? Well, his answer is, fuck no. Fuck you and fuck this motherfucking political system that would stand on the foundation of lies and deceit. Ned's life is less precious than his honor. Got it, Ned, Varys sort of says. So your life isn't all that valuable. So would it be okay if we killed Sansa instead of you, Ned? Wait, Sansa? Yeah, Ned. Sansa. She'll be so fucking dead if you don't give Cersei the answer and follow on responses that she wants. And do we kill children in Westeros? Yeah, we do. Just look at Rhaegar's kids if you want proof of that. And then we get some more Varys mugging for the camera or his audience if this is a play, and it's just perfect. The High Septon once told me that as we sin, so do we suffer. If that's true, Lord Eddard, tell me. Why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you High Lords play your Game of Thrones? Ponder it if you would while we wait upon the Queen. And spare a thought for this as well. The next visitor who calls on you could bring you bread and cheese and the milk of the poppy for your pain. Or... He could bring you Sansa's head. The choice is entirely Ned's. And that is a Game of Thrones editor 15. And I think I and everyone else can now let out a breath that we were all holding as we plunged through that final Vars and Ned scene because it's, I, I, th- I would say it's probably the defining conversation in the Game of Thrones. Hell, it even has Vars saying the words Game of Thrones. So you might as well just like kind of roll the credits at this point. And I've got so many freaking emotions going through this chapter it's a rush it's Varys at his most cynical yet somewhat honest it's so fucking sad sitting here at the end of Ned Stark because this is basically Ned Stark's epilogue as I'm going to talk about momentarily and yeah we're going to get to see Ned one last time we'll hear him say some words but dad's not going to make it like I said at the beginning and I'm angry and sad and sad and angry and angry and sad I'm, I'm all sorts of emotions the only two emotions that are right there's that Jeff Hartline emotional rage <laughs> that we know and love so well and yes this is the last and best Ned chapter despite being more an epilogue than a climax as we said in Edward 14 the climax was the confrontation in the throne room as Ned puts it all in the line and goes down with his men but I've been saying throughout Ned's chapters that while the overarching plot about discovering the truth of John Aaron's death and Cersei's incest is serviceable what really draws me into these chapters on reread is the internal qualities of Ned's arc. 
The emotional and philosophical questions sparked by that unfolding mystery and the drama created by its agonizing interaction with Ned's backstory increasingly present in his mind. In Edward 15, that overarching story is over and it's being stripped down for spare parts. You've got Rob preparing to take over for Ned in-universe and Tyrion in the wings to take over over for him in terms of the narrative. Tyrion will be the protagonist of, of A Clash of Kings mm-hmm. in much the same way Ned is the protagonist of A Game of Thrones. So all we have left in terms of Ned is the character, alone in the dark, turning inward on himself because it's all he has left to do. The Black Cells are a crucible for Ned, breaking him down physically and emotionally so Martin can fully explore the themes of his story's heart. This is where we get to talk about what it all meant, and it hits home as such because it's communicated so beautifully. There's so much to discuss, but what really makes Edward 15 my favorite Ned chapter is the tone, alternately harrowing and sorrowful. It's the perfect way for him to go. Yeah, I think harrowing and sorrowful are the perfect words, perfect words to describe the tone of this chapter. And that turning inward on himself is so powerful and even theatrical, I would say. It's very much like the tragic hero's final soliloquy in a Shakespeare play, you know, in mm. Act 5 at the end of the play when he realizes he's probably not going to make it and is reflecting on life one last time, like Macbeth's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day speech. It it really feels like that, that you could take this narrative in the novel form that Martin has it in and kind of make it into a soliloquy for the stage. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about something about uh, the Shakespearean side of it. In a lot of these plays, I know you're going to talk about them as we're going through the podcast. Do the characters in these plays, do they think that there's kind of a way out because one of the interesting themes about this chapter is that yes this chapter like it too, especially says rereads because we know what, what happens but even in the first time reading you're like i don't really get a good feeling from this chapter but at the same time ned's kind of constructing these castles of hope and dream and things like that while he's down in the dungeons is that something that occurs in, in shakespeare's plays as well for these characters that are in their final epilogue moments um, no, not so much, actually. I, I think that they truly do realize it's the end of the road, but it's not even really acknowledging verbatim that it's the end of the road. It's more of that internal monologue talking about what's going on in their mind. And that's why I think that this prison scene is such uh, a powerful setting for the exploration of that, because that's all that he has is this straw that smells of urine and and nothing else all around him so we get that full exploration of ned's mind and all these all this imagery from his past it's super powerful absolutely and that contrast you were just talking about between the minimal setting and the more elaborate dream sequences and almost visions that ned experiences i think is really what makes this chapter so powerful before we get into the content we should talk a little bit about the form because this is a more stylistically ambitious chapter than it might appear on first glance. On the one hand, it's about a man lying very still in a box, and occasionally he gets to drink something. The thrills, the chills. <laughs> it's not exactly a roller coaster, but you know, it would seem to stand in deliberate contrast to something like the Hands Tourney or the Tower of Joy, is what I'm saying. Those showers of bright, overripe imagery in early Ned chapters. But the first half of this chapter finds Ned taking refuge in exactly that imagery, castles of hope, as he tellingly calls them, which seems very much like a line Sansa would come up with in the later <laughs> books. Like when she's looking at those clouds merging into one right before the Purple Wedding. That's what Ned is trying to hide in to save himself from the darkness, but ultimately, as, as we saw in Jeff's synopsis, those images turn on him. So Edward 15 finds Martin pushing the envelope in both directions at once. We've talked before about A Song of Ice and Fire being neither romantic nor grimdark, exactly, but being about the collision between the two, and I think this chapter is a great example. You're, you're cutting back and forth 
between the more grounded misery of imprisonment to the wistful flights of fancy in Ned's mind's eye. It creates an almost dialectic feel, like A Song of Ice and Fire is the synthesis that's resulting from this process, one which does not abandon the rich surface of fantasy but seeks to put it in context of bleak politics, bleaker violence, and above all, the internal struggles of our characters, as we were saying. Rather than strand fantasy and grimdark or scrub it squeaky clean again, Martin insists the two have a relationship. We have to understand what it is. And you could argue that such a synthesis is the in-universe ideal as well. You've got Melisandre's rigid binaries. There are two, two, as she insists to Davos in A Storm of Swords. And then the very, and then the chapter previous to that, at Brand 2, you have the Reed's semi-Taoist beliefs in the unitary whole of mountain and valley, love and hate, ice and fire. These are all one thing. And you have these contrasting worldviews. And I think uh, Martin is ultimately coming down on the latter side. He's looking for this synthesis. And I think you could argue the series as a whole is attempting that. What I think is, uh, is cool about this chapter is that we have Martin doing a good job of making it realistic that Ned might make it out alive, right? Because we, while it, it, there is a certain tenor and tone to this chapter that is very dark and you intrinsically feel that Ned's not going to make it, at the same time, he he does make some realistic kind of smart thoughts he does he does make these these thoughts thinking that well if they wanted me dead why am i still like down here in the dungeon like they actually want me alive for some sort of reason and, and this gets confirmed by Varus later in the chapter where you're like oh okay so they actually don't want ned dead but the question that ned is going to tackle here is whether that sort of life is the one worth living it, it's kind of a weird parallel but kind of the way that Khal drogo whether the life that he's living as this kind of corpse-like character is the one worth living compared to the one that he had lived previously or whether death is preferable and for ned the same question exists here whether a life devoid of honor and honesty is one worth living and it's something that he struggles with and ultimately comes down to forgoing his honor and honesty but not for his own sake but for his daughter's sake Right. I also like what you said about um, the synthesis of dualities in this chapter, Emmett. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And all the way through Ned's arc, too, I remember when you guys had Stephen Adewell on, you were talking about how it, it seems like there are some Romeo and Juliet vibes, you know, with the ill-fated vibes right from the start with the heavy foreshadowing and everything. And you know, juxtapositions of opposites are in Romeo and Juliet as well. Love is fused with death in a way that fantasy is fused with harsh reality in a Game of Thrones. So um, I, I definitely think that that synthesis of dualities is a really good thing to point out. It's right in the title, Song of Ice and Fire. Right. So let's let's get into both these sides, the minimal and the maximal, starting with the former. Eddard 15, as you said, Lauren, is full of these raw details, <laughs> emphasizing the sheer physical toll of his imprisonment. It starts with uh, the straw stinking of urine, which is just immediately supposed to make you wince as a reader mm -hmm. and, and get into that unpleasant, uncomfortable headspace the same way Theon's first reek chapter in Dance, after you haven't had a Theon chapter for, you know, three books in 13 years, and it starts with... <laughs> the rat squealed when he bit into it. It's just supposed to immediately get your your hair on edge and, and get you into this mood. And then you have, like, the lack of adequate food and water being given to Ned, the fact that he doesn't have any comfortable bedding. Of course, his inflamed wound is going untreated and just and hurting him physically and contributing to his mental state. And then, yeah, you have that psychological toll that, that Martin is exploring here, the fact that Ned is, is stuck alone in the dark and has no sense of time. He's all alone. He's got this grief and guilt he's trying to process regarding both Robert and the men who died for him in the throne room. He's got this, this heartbreaking agony of not knowing what's happened to his daughters and not being e even able to cry and get some catharsis out of it. Mm -hmm. And you have this kind of this self-loathing turn inward that I think often accompanies this environment, This that Ned is calling himself a fool and hates himself. So I think you can see Martin making what 
really ought to be an uncontroversial argument that solitary <laughs> confinement is torture. I mean, I think imprisonment in general is a bad foundation for a justice system that tends to cause more problems than it solves, but that's an argument for another day. Specifically in Ned's circumstances, humans just aren't meant to live like this, cut off from stimulus and nourishment. It's just bad for you. It, it wounds you inside. So when, when Ned you know, weeps to himself, God save me, I am going mad. I think you can see Martin, you know, he's, he's, he's stripping Ned down as a character so he can get at what the heart of his character means. But you can, I think you can also see him critiquing the more literal stripping down being done to Ned by his captors. Right. And using that prison scene as a, um, and the, the cutoffs from stimulus as a way to, uh, strip down a character and explore their mind has been used for a very long time. This scene reminds me an awful lot of Richard II's imprisonment scene from Richard II. Act five, of course, at the end of the play. And, and that scene starts with a soliloquy revealing how solitary confinement has driven him mad. Hmm. And he says, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. And Richard goes on to describe how how his brain and his soul are going to marry and beget thoughts, which will people his world in <laughs> his cell by himself. It's it's actually painful and distressing to read that whole soliloquy. It's really long and it reminds me of this chapter yeah yeah i can definitely see the the parallels there i mean yeah ned's in a terrible terrible place much as richard ii was in richard ii as as a play and i think it's really telling that all of the physical descriptions there are all negative ones darkness no light hunger thirst alone silence like these are all things that are not associated with good and positive feelings which is Totally fair and totally realistic, too, for Ned's circumstances that he's in. But I think what that does more than anything else is that it helps to bring us to who Ned is as a character more than anything else. So he doesn't have his chain of office or he doesn't he doesn't have his hand pin. He doesn't have his lordship in Winterfell. Instead, we're down to who Ned is at the most essential, vital level. Absolutely. And like you were saying earlier, there is kind of a sign of potential hope as you go through this chapter for the first time. Obviously, as you were saying, you know, being alone in a cell and wounded and not being fed, none of these are good signs. <laughs> but there's also, you could also say that that's womb-like imagery, that it suggests a rebirth. Yeah. And that is in the belly of the whale part of his hero's journey in the same way that Davos will be in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, where he's thrown into jail multiple times and seems on the, the brink of destruction, but always, always manages to pull it out and emerge a stronger person. But on reread that, we know that's not what's happening to Ned. We know that this cell represents his coffin. That's what it means for him to just be stuck in this box and think of himself as dead and buried with his king. And that's why you get these connections between the black cells and Winterfell crypts. You know, the Winterfell crypts also go down several levels and they have this, this dark, gloomy feel to them, just like the black cells. And you have Bran and Rickon dreaming in Bran's final chapter about Ned being down there in Winterfell crypts, which is not only a sign that he's dead, but also connects him to being in the black cells. In both cases, he's, he's being stuck away underneath the great fortress mm. and uh and then we get to the the more maximal section ned's life flashing before his eyes this is all, all <laughs> the, the imagery that speaks to his past and as you're saying jeff to the core of his character so this is this works a little differently from the tower of joy that was like one singular set piece that martin devoted a couple pages to and then we moved on from that to the rest of the chapter this is more impressionistic in its use of flashbacks and loaded imagery yeah the fever dream was like a crown jewel and now and is more like brand tripping on weirwood and jojen pace he's skipping across the surface <laughs> of his life 
Like, you know, the visions of the House of Undying that were like, uh, Martin describes them as like shivering out of the indigo, like these, these vast images, but they're kind of made out of that color. And Ned's visions here, I, I imagine them being somehow both rainbow colored because mm-hmm. of the romantic time he's remembering, but also sh- some shades of black and gray befitting what happened and, and where he is now in life. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> what Ned is looking for, though, isn't some cryptic prophetic image of the sort that pops up in Brand and Danny chapters. He's looking for the meaning of his life. Like when Varus says to him, I trust you realize you are a dead man, Lord Eddard. He does at some level. That's why he says dead buried with his king. Like he's a cow's blood riders following him to the grave, as we will learn later in Danny chapters. They do. So now he has to know what was it all for. And that's, I think, why his visions center around... Not only the present-day villains who have brought him low, Cersei and Littlefinger, both of whom are mocking Ned in these visions, but also youthful versions of the two people that have arguably defined his life more than any other, Robert and Lyanna. And indeed, you get the sense in this vision that Robert is giving way to Littlefinger. Robert, Robert's face like breaks open to reveal Littlefinger. And there's a lot linking Cersei to Lyanna as well. Like Robert was left with Cersei after Lyanna's death and whispered Lyanna's name in Cersei's ear. So you get this this great sense of the, the youthful images of Robert and Lyanna and all the promise and hope and love they represented for Ned giving way to Cersei and Littlefinger. Hmm. And I think you can see in that arc uh, a metaphor for Ned's arc of disillusionment as a whole. Yeah, that's really well said. I have to say that this vision of Robert is especially interesting to me. Uh, the way that it manifests, it's almost like he's a ghost in yeah. how he hmm. and Ned converse with each other. And see each other in the same space, you know, in, in his prison cell there. Um, and it, it just interests me because ghosts are, are one thing that we don't get in A Song of Ice and Fire. We get all these other fantastical elements, magic and dragons and prophecies, oh my. But <laughs> Ned's, Ned's vision of Robert um, very much feels like a ghost. And I, but it's not. I, I wonder if Martin was tempted to go full Shakespearean and make Robert a ghost, like, you know, how Hamlet sees his father's ghost, Macbeth sees the ghost of Banquo, and what's the other one? Oh, even Brutus sees Caesar's ghost, and we're going to talk more about Julius Caesar later on here. But, um, yeah, I wonder if Martin was tempted to do that in this scene, but he resisted. I think hmm. I think that's a good thing because the deeper meaning of ghosts in literature anyway is usually the inner psychology of the character they appear to. And that's something we explore fully well in this chapter. <laughs> in Martin's world, is there an afterlife necessarily? Is that the reason why there's no ghost necessarily in this chapter? We do know there's some sort of magical force we talked about. Melisandre's prophecies are real. There's some sort of force working to animate the others that is beyond human reason and understanding. But... The afterlife, I mean, it is referenced at times, but is references part of the symbols and practices of the faith of the seven, the old gods going into the trees, that sort of thing. So maybe the reason why we don't see ghosts in this chapter and Robert's ghost doesn't actually rise up in Ned's cell is because there is no, there's no heaven, there is no hell, there's just a nothingness after afterlife. Yeah, that's a good point. It would like be confirmation of something and lead to more, I don't know, more inquiry about what that is. For sure. I think the emphasis, obviously, in the series is more on the undead than the actually right, dead. Right. You know, all these all these various kinds of zombies, I think, is, is more what Martin's going for. And I think you uh, make a great point, point, Lauren, that Robert fulfills the function of a ghost in this scene dramatically, even though he's not literally a ghost, that Hamlet's father's ghost appearing to him was about you know, laying this duty on Hamlet that Hamlet didn't really feel up for and was kind of scared of. And Macbeth seeing his ghost representing his, his guilt and his feeling of not really belonging on the throne he'd stolen. And you get very similar themes, I think, with, with Ned and Robert here, that this conversation is about emphasizing 
uh, their fall from grace. I think this feels like a, a, a monologue and a conversation both Hamlet and Macbeth would nod along with and recognize when, when Robert is saying, look at us, Ned. Gods, how did we come to this? Absolutely. You here and me killed by a pig. We won a throne together. There's just that real sadness there. We won a throne together. We were the, the best we could be. We had these great lives in front of us. We were fulfilling the songs and the stories. And now look what happened to us. Yeah. And then you get this longer flashback centering on the turning at Harrenhal right before everything went wrong. And it, it firmly establishes it as Martin's ultimate vision, really, I think, in the series as a whole of the good life. This is, I think, the ultimate moment where Martin frames, okay, Westeros as a whole is kind of <laughs> terrible and all these people are sad and broken. So what does the good life look like? And I think this is it. This temporary state of grace for which this generation is forever searching to no avail. It's laughter and sex and wine and war is a game rather than a grim reality. And of course, warm weather. It's mm-hmm. the sense of a winter lifting, which has all, all sorts of emotional resonance and symbolism to it. But as we know, that was a false spring. And Ned feels that now more than ever with Robert dead along with so many Starks. And that's how the vision ends with the moment when all the smiles mm-hmm. died, which I think would be a great alternate title for this book. Obviously, Martin has this great you know, naming scheme, but I think you could call this first book with the moment when all the smiles die. That cuts across pretty much every story from Bran's fall to everything that happens with Sansa and Arya near the end of this book, even Daenerys near the end. And so you have Rhaegar crowning Lyanna with this kiss crown that drips blood <laughs> and he's wearing the armor he will die. And so it's, it's this, as you were saying, it's, it's death in love. Yeah. It's death in life. These two things are contained within each other. And you, Ned re- reaching for the crown and bleeding for it. That connects to how, like, Robert's rebellion soured and how Viserys died. And it's his promise to Lyanna, you know, John as a potential heir to the throne is the crown, symbolically. And Ned has metaphorically and now literally bled to keep him and other kids safe. The moment in the turning of the Heron Hall is the happiest time for a lot of these people's lives. I mean, it's everything after that moment goes bad. I mean, it's it's only shortly after that that Lyanna's abducted, in quotation marks, by Rhaegar Targaryen. And that Aerys Targaryen kills Brandon and Rickard Stark and calls for the heads of Ned and Robert. And sure, Robert kind of, it's, it's interesting. For Ned, the tourney of Hall is a time of peace in the realm. It's a time when there's all these wonderful things that are happening, all these very vivid senses that are being, uh, synopses that are being kind of activated by, by his memory here. But for Ned, the moment when all the smiles die is when when Rhaegar crowns Lyanna. But for Robert, it's interesting because Robert's happiest time was immediately after that. All the all the war fighting, all you know, muscle like a maiden's fantasy, swinging your war hammer left and right. It's really interesting that contrast between Ned and Robert and how they both consider this the war that really brought them into significant prominence. You got that vision of, of Robert in his glory days, the horn god, his eyes clear as blue mountain lakes, and then it, it, it melts away and it's Littlefinger. Yeah. Because, of course, Littlefinger is the end result of all these dreams going wrong. Littlefinger is what you get spat back out the other side, determined to destroy the system that didn't give you what you wanted. And that that kind of broke Robert from within. And, you know, what Ned is holding on to, his candle in the darkness here, is the promise he made to Lyanna. The secret he kept from Robert and the, the mercy for the children theme at the heart of his story. And Robert slash Littlefinger in this, this vision sequence... He delivers the line that I think so many people take away from Ned's story. Can you eat pride? Stark will honor shield your children. I think for a lot of people like that's the thesis statement of Ned's storyline. And I don't quite agree because I think it's worth remembering that Ned making his deal with Cersei and lying for his children's sake in this chapter. Ned, you know, giving up his pride and honor for the sake of doing the children. It doesn't end up shielding him or his children. Like Joffrey immediately stabs him in the back and it does not save Sansa from any violence at his hands. What actually shields his children are the bonds he made in life. Yeah. That's why the reeds are guarding Brand because of Howland Reed's bond with Ned. 
That's why the clansmen are marching, so they believe, for Arya, because of the <laughs> bonds they made with Ned Stark. And I think that's partially why the Northmen will in all likelihood crown John at some point, because he's he looks like Ned Stark. And he's he's wielding a big old sword and is, is gonna gonna present himself in the, the Ned Stark fashion. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, mm-hmm. as we will see in uh, Quentin's chapters, Spurn Suitor, many books from now. <laughs> and while Ned is despairing in this chapter for good reason, because he's hit rock bottom in pretty much every conceivable way, it, his legacy is more than this dark night of the soul. Yeah, all that stuff is absolutely true. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. But then we have Lord Varys coming in, who is going to tell Ned that you do trust that you are a dead man, right? You do know that, right, Ned? And yeah, Ned does know that. But what we're going to get in this conversation between Ned and Varys is kind of like that last sort of lifeline. Like, hey, Ned, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, uh, Emmett, you've talked significantly at significant length about how the Tattered Prince operates as sort of the devil for Quentin Martell in this in this scene and tempting Quentin towards towards terrible deeds. But Varys here is kind of operating the same sort of temptation role. Like, this kingdom can all be yours, or in this case, this life can all be yours, so long as you just do this one little teeny tiny little thing. Absolutely. Varys is presenting himself as, as Ned's savior to a certain extent, but what he really is is an avatar of death. And yeah, I love this this scene so much. It's probably the best Varys scene in the series to date. And I think it's it struck me on reread. It's really telling that Martin chooses to show this conversation, that he chooses Great. to build the, the chapter around this conversation and not the one with Cersei that follows yeah. it, the conversation that Varys is talking about. We don't see that. And the latter is the one that actually matters in terms of the plot. Yeah. That's the one that leads to Ned's false confession and thus his execution come Arya 5. Like he, we don't see him agree to that in this chapter. That's not what the conversation is actually about. But as I said earlier, this chapter is more about character and theme than plot. And the conversation with Varys is all about character and theme. It's all about what it meant. I mean, we already had the Ned versus Cersei showdown right. in The Godswood in Edward 12. That was, as I said at the time, the center of Ned's story and A Game of Thrones as a whole. And this is the epilogue. So Varys isn't Ned's nemesis. Nor his assassin, really. He's the crypt keeper. He's mm. the grim reaper. He's he's the ferryman come to usher Ned across the river Styx. <laughs> Ned spends Ned spends this whole chapter on the edge between life and death. He loses his sense of time and smell. He's 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 coming unstuck in his memories. He's passing into the next world. So Varus is death, and this is Martin's version of the chess game with death in the, in the seventh seal. That's that's what Ned is engaging with here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I love that analysis. I've just. Uh... I'm always floored by your analysis, Emmett. It's um, oh, wonderful Same. to listen Same. to every time. Um, I, I really agree with, yeah, it's so interesting that we don't get that Ned and Cersei scene. But yeah, like you said, we've already had it. Um, yep. And that was a very Shakespearean feeling scene, too. Um, when Anytime that we have these very intimate two-character scenes... It, it does lend a sort of lyrical, theatrical sense because you, you can imagine it easily staged. And it's always, these scenes are always revealing a lot about character and, um, you know, unfolding of the mind and the deeper, richer themes in the plot. And Varys's entrance changes the narrative rhythm of Ned's POV in this chapter and marks the second part of the chapter. He's turning Ned's inner monologue into a two-character dialogue. Hmm. heightening the dramatic tension of an already very intense chapter. I mean, even just Ned in a bed of straw in a prison cell, just reading that for a few pages is extremely emotionally intense. But Varys also enhances the theatrical vibes of this scene with his mummery and his lyrical speech, especially with his each man has a role to play bit, 
which is quite reminiscent of a famous monologue from Shakespeare's As You Like It, which goes, <laughs> All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. <laughs> so, Varys telling Ned, each man has a role to play, is it, kind of like the author telling us, Ned, Ned still has a role to play here, and he's going to have to brush off his acting skills because, you know what, he's Gonna have to lie a little bit. Um, <laughs> it, Varys is presenting him. Uh, Varys is presenting Ned essentially with the moral quandary, the, his big moral quandary at the end of the chapter. Um, Ned is either going to have to tell the truth to the public, or he's going to have to lie to save his daughter. And from the groundwork earlier on in this chapter, we understand pretty well how Ned is going to choose. Um, we are witness to that exploration of his mind and the grief and guilt that he feels about failing those he loves and how that outweighs his commitment to honor and integrity, which in and of themselves are tricky concepts to define in this situation. You know, it's like a conflict of loyalties telling the truth to the public mm -hmm. or saving Sansa, his daughter. But we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think we also have the setup for the Vara's turn where Vara's first threatens his life and Ned's like, just kill me, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm ready to die sort of thing. But at the same time, we have the setup inherent earlier in the chapter where Ned is constantly asking after Arya and Sansa in order to gain information. Are they alive? Are they dead? What's going on with them? And that kind of anger and sadness kind of freezing inside of him, which he which, again, Martin does a really good job of, of putting in there, does really good groundwork in order to set this later scene up where Vars then turns from, okay, Ned, you don't care about your life. What about your daughter's lives? Like, that's really powerful stuff. And it really helps augment this chapter because foreshadowing doesn't have to simply be something that occurs in book one that gets fulfilled in book six or seven, for instance, R plus L equals J. It could be something that occurs early in the chapter that then gets fulfilled later in the chapter. Foreshadowing has to work both internally to the chapter itself and to the greater narrative as a whole. I think, Lauren, you made a great point about how we, we, we really know what decision Ned is going to make, not just from the buildup throughout his story, but just from the nature and tone of his flashbacks. We're being shown why Ned has made this choice in the past and why it's inevitably going to be the choice he makes now. And Varus is the perfect character to kind of prod him into this struggle because Varus's character is so wrapped up in these questions of saving individual lives versus the big picture and how to handle your consequences. I think the offer is... I think the author is emphasizing Varus' status as an avatar of death with some classic wine equals blood symbolism, mm. which stands out really strongly in this chapter. When he, he, he drinks the wine so Ned knows it's not poison, the quote is, he drank a trickle of red leaking from the corner of his plump mouth. You know, suggesting that, that Varus is, is drinking on blood, gorging on blood in terms of how he sets up this conflict for his own ends and has done so in the past as well. Even more telling later on, quote, I serve the realm and the realm needs peace. <laughs> He finished the last swallow of wine and tossed the empty skin aside. Mm. So Varus's proclamation of peace is being undercut by the imagery, which suggests that the realm will be emptied of blood, that empty skin with no more wine in it by the time he is done. He's offering the peace of the grave. Yes, it'll technically be at peace in the same way that you know, the wine skin is, is now empty, of, empty right. of blood to be spilled. There's no more blood to be spilled because everyone's already dead. That's the kind of peace Varus is talking about. And that's exactly the kind of non-peace that Ned has been dreading and trying to avoid regarding Robert. The specter of Rhaegar's children, whose death was covered up by the victory of Robert's Rebellion. The threat to Danny's life also kind of is covered up and dealt with and just get it done. 
Ned's subtextual fears for, for John's life in Robert's hands. All of it points to, as, as I argued in earlier Ned chapters, to Robert as Eris, mm. to Robert becoming the king of ashes that Eris prophesied he would be. And so Varus's detached view has this cold Machiavellian logic, but it's running up against Ned's instinct for mercy. And I think in the series as a whole, Martin argues that the individual acts of mercy should hold sway. That's where you get Davos's everything rejoinder to Stannis, especially when Stannis says, what is, what is the whole kingdom? All these people, all these lives against one life. And Davos says everything. The individual matters as much. And I think Martin is arguing that ultimately that produces better outcomes. And I think we, we have to, Remember about Varus, again, that for all his, his pretense of high-mindedness and wants to <laughs> save the realm, that he fed Eris' worst impulses, yeah. no matter what he says now. Yeah. Right. I Yeah, Varus is such an interesting character to me. He's really, I, I really like what you say about him representing death. Sometimes I think he's, he's such a Shakespearean theatrical character. I can't really <laughs> sort him as a character because he, hmm, he is just so different. You know, he is a villain but at the same time he is also i don't know he, he he's kind of like voice of the author sometimes to me he's conveying these For messages sure. he's very meta yeah yeah <laughs> he conveys these messages that not really anybody else can and i think that's why we get this conversation with him instead of the scene with cersei um he says something in particular that really interests me uh his line about ned's mercy killing Robert, like that being the culprit of Robert's death, is, I, I don't know, almost kind of out of place in this chapter. And then hmm. you think about earlier in the chapter, uh, Ned's fears that he let them kill Robert. I mean, obviously, Ned did not kill Robert. And you just kind of wonder, where are we going with this conclusion here? Did Ned really kill Robert in an abstract sense? Um, and the answer is... I, I don't know. No, but it's really, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's really interesting to think about the Shakespearean influence behind the suggestion that Ned had a part to play in Robert's death. George seems to be solidifying a parallel between Ned and Brutus and Julius Caesar, which is weird because you think of Brutus and Julius Caesar and you're like, wait, what? Wait a second. This is the guy <laughs> who killed Caesar. This is the traitor, you know? He gave Caesar the last stab. I mean, that's not Ned at all. But hear me out for a second. Some of their similarities. Both Ned and Brutus are the trusted friend of a powerful leader. They both dedicate themselves to the public sphere, but are ultimately rejected by it. They're reputed as the most honorable of men. Um, multiple times in Julius Caesar. The word honor is just so prevalent. It's, hmm. it's like this driving, pulsating force, this concept of honor. And Brutus has this one line um, that goes, for let the gods so speed me as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. And I just imagine Ned's hmm. face just kind of looming up behind those lines as he said it. Mm -hmm. And it was when I saw that line that I was like, there's something here. Anyway, they're both tragic heroes with fatal flaws. And even their differences are reflective. Brutus carries out a murder conspiracy while Ned seeks to solve one. Brutus hmm. is governed by public loyalties while Ned is governed by private loyalties. And that public self versus private self conflict is kind of um, the primary motor in Julius Caesar, the primary thematic motor. And I think that that is what George is drawing on in hmm. his Shakespearean influence for Ned's arc. Um, 
Shakespeare's message with Brutus was that it's unwise to elevate the public self entirely over the private self. Hmm. And Georgia R. R. Martin counters that message in A Game of Thrones by showing us that there is equally great danger when public duties aren't given as much priority as the private self. This brings us to think about what Ned's fatal flaws are. We've got that perennial argument of what was Ned's downfall, his honor or his failure to understand and efficiently carry out the duties of his position? Or was he stupid? Which if you think Ned is stupid, then you're stupid and all of that. You tell him, Lauren. (laughs) Bad and ugly. Absolutely. His honor is a, a, a big part of what what makes him make some of the decisions that he makes his hand that, you know, lead to some not so great consequences. But arguing that Ned was too honorable <laughs> and that's what killed him, it's it's just too grim dark, as we say, and, and nihilistic for what Martin is trying to achieve with his arc, I think. I think there is generally too much focus on where Ned went wrong and actually not enough on what he did right, especially mm-hmm. in the broad scope of his whole narrative. You know, how, how he died after making a choice that was personally meaningful and true to who he was, especially after all his trauma from Robert's rebellion. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. I mean, and when you look at it realistically, it wasn't Ned's honor that killed Robert. It was Cersei who killed Robert. Cersei, who did all of the things that got Robert killed, all of and and I think what Martin does a really good job of is that Ned is feeling very guilty at the end of his life. So when he's there, being like, "I killed you, Robert. I killed you," and you're like, "No, Ned, you didn't." But I get it, man. I get like you're in an emotional, dark, dark place. But at the end of the day, it's not your mercy that killed Robert. It's your mercy that ends up being a defining thing that the Northmen can rally to that Rob Stark and others can aspire to that inspires us as readers to be like, this guy is a pretty decent guy of all the characters that we meet in the song of ice and fire. I mean, everyone's got their favorite characters, but there's few political actors in a song of ice and fire that is, that are as reputable and as honorable and as worth aspiring to as Ned Stark. And I think that is really, really powerful. Absolutely. And as you say, Lauren, it, it matters so much that he he sticks to his values and he makes that choice that's meaningful to him and, and resolves his identity, even if it doesn't ultimately save his life for reasons that are out of his control. I think that's something Martin fo- focuses on a lot. Brienne's no chance and no choice moment being one of the most famous Davos to find the phrase in the merman's mm-hmm. court. Uh, Aaron Damper and the Forsaken, you know, sticking to his God, even in the face of everything Euron's throwing at him. It's these moments that are all the more powerful because they don't magically change the circumstances of their character's environment. So as we've been saying, it, it becomes purely about character and their decisions and how you you admire them for sticking to their guns in the face of these hopeless odds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the Ned Brutus parallels, um, why I brought up this line about, you know, how Varys says that it was Ned's mercy that killed Robert. You know, it's still kind of a cognitive stretch to make that Ned Brutus parallel without Ned killing Robert, because Brutus killing Caesar is kind of a big deal in his arc. And <laughs> here in this chapter, George sneakily slides that in to really solidify the illusion so that it is all nice and neat and tied up in a bow. And I, I just found that really interesting because uh, I forgot about that line, even um like I was writing this essay about Ned and Brutus parallels and I didn't even find that line until really late and I had to go out and edit my essay and I was just like, whoa, <laughs> he he really did it. He really made it work. 
you know, what do we what do we know about what George has said about Julius Caesar? Has he said anything in interviews um, about how it's influenced him? And well, he kind of has. Um, so on. So our friend Eliana from Girls Gone Canon <laughs> is also a huge Shakespeare fan, which is which just delights me because she, she feeds me like these little tidbits that he said. <laughs> and it's just my joy. Um, but she said that she asked him at a book signing what his favorite Shakespeare play was, and he answered Julius Caesar and Richard III. So that's very telling. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the SSM archives back in 2002, he says that the comet and Julius Caesar was inspiration for the comet at the end of Game of Thrones. Um, so... You know, that's a huge deal. We know that he's thinking about Julius Caesar. That's just like one line that Caesar's wife says about this comet and Julius Caesar. It's not really mentioned outside of that. So he's got to be digging pretty deep into this play. He's got to know it pretty well. Um, And then in 2001, someone asked George about honor in A Song of Ice and Fire. And George replied, 2,000 years after the assassination of Julius Caesar, people are still debating whether or not that was an honorable act. Dante put Brutus and Cassius in the lowest level of hell for what they did (laughs) right next to Judas Iscariot. But Shakespeare wrote that Brutus was the noblest Roman of them all. So argue on. So, you know, somebody asks him about honor and he goes straight to Shakespeare and this play and the Bible, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, tons of biblical influences in A Song of Ice and Fire, too. But um, with Julius Caesar and and Brutus's conflict of public versus private self, George R. R. Martin is adding to that rich historical and literary narrative surrounding honor with his own story. By positioning Ned alongside Brutus, our author is showing us, like, honor is this very broad spectrum, but the human condition, you know, the struggles that we all endure, that's still very much the same. And I don't Hmm. know about you guys, but to me, that is just profound like yeah. it, it makes me angry how good that is it's just so good i get like upset talking about it almost and, and very passionate absolutely and i think you can see martin reflecting that sense of, of conflict between these forces within us all not only within characters but also between characters as we were saying in our recent episode on Tyrion seven the way Tyrion and tywin kind of feel like they're in the same head and are the same person mm-hmm. and arguing with each other different aspects of the same person and I think you also see that with Stannis and Renly, who Varus spends a little bit of time talking about in this chapter. And I think this is where we get Martin's definitive statement to date on Robert's brothers before we start exploring them in much greater <laughs> length in Clash of Kings. He starts by contrasting them before zooming in on Stannis specifically. They're quite a pair, Stannis and Renly, the Iron Gauntlet and the Silk Glove. And I love that because it sets up perfectly how devastating Stannis and Renly could be if they actually work mm-hmm. together. But also why they won't. Like, they're the perfect good cop and bad cop, the viper in the grass, as Duran Martel will describe himself and his brother Oberyn. And as, as Stannis himself would say, he and Renly would be unbeatable if they just could stand to be in the same room <laughs> as each other, but they can't. And the Lannisters are so relieved about that because that's the only way they stand a chance of survival. So that the royal family turns on each other in Robert's wake mirrors Ned's overall disillusionment about Robert and the latter's fall from grace. The fact that Stannis and Renly are turning on each other in the wake of, in the shadow of Storm's End which, of course, Robert gave to Renly instead of Stannis. This, it speaks to the dysfunction within Robert and the kind of the, the failure of him to reconcile his selves and come to this hole and stick to his values, as, as we're saying Ned is doing. Uh, even more important for both Ned and Varys, though, is the latter's description of Stannis. And this, of course, is one of my favorite passages in the series. And this is really where you see <laughs> Martin establishing why Stannis is here at all. 
His claim is the true one. He's known for his prowess as a battle commander. And he is utterly without mercy. <laughs> there is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. Mm. Now, I love this in so many, so many ways, most of which I'm going to save for when we meet the man himself, but it sets up so well what Stannis means for the story, because you can see Ned and the first-time reader nodding along as Varys describes Stannis. This sounds pretty good. He's a threat to Cersei. He's a proven commander. He's the true heir to the throne. Like, this is, this is exactly what the Doctor ordered. This is exactly what Ned needs to save the day. But then Varys gets to utterly without mercy. Mm. And then you can imagine Ned's smile starting to falter. Because Ned put it all on the line for mercy for Cersei's children, and this is the first time he used to confront that the man he hoped to crown instead would absolutely kill those kids. Every bit as much as Robert would. Now, before Jeff kills me with his eyes, Stan Stannis is not as rigid and heartless as Varys makes out here. But Stannis does adapt, adopt a detached utilitarian view I was talking about earlier that is not so dissimilar to that of Varys. Indeed, he's urged to do so by Melisandre, who has so many par parallels with Varys, as we'll get into as we go. And that, that imagery I was talking about earlier of Varus kind of sucking the, the blood dry from the realm points to the ultimate folly and failure of Varus's approach. And I think Stannis, for all his, his increasingly good motivations and his desire to do right by Westeros, is ultimately going to end up with ash and dust in his hands. So I think this is part of the reason I do consider Ned more admirable than Stannis on the whole, <laughs> even if I'm probably more invested in Stannis as a character. That's fair. I mean, yeah. am I going to be am I going to be an outcast on my own podcast now that I'm You're banned? You are banned. I just <laughs> go ahead, Lauren. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, it, yeah. What I find really interesting is that Ned and Stannis do share so many qualities, um, but where they're fundamentally fundamentally different. If you take um, Brutus as a Shakespearean model for both of them, because Stannis also has some commonalities with Brutus is that Stannis is willing to lay everything on the line for the public, um, like Brutus, you know, it's, uh, that whole, oh, you guys tell me what it is. Is it, what, what, what is the life of one for 10,000? Child versus a million. Right. It's that whole, no, it's 10,000, isn't it? I swear it's 10,000. The Amons? No, it's the, uh, was the life of one child. Oh, damn it. It's an If I must sacrifice one child to the dark. To save a million. Eamon's speech is the one who uses 10,000 as the number when he's saying Lord Edward was okay, one so what is, So I'm getting my numbers confused. What, what is the one that, <laughs> that, that Stannis says? It's uh, if I if, must sacrifice... If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the to dark. To save a million from the dark. All right, all right. easy, yeah. See, you guys, and I, I bow down to you guys for the Stannis <laughs> um, analysis, but... We've right. run them all to me. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, that was basically Brutus's argument for killing Caesar. You know, it's all for the for for the good of Rome. And of course, you know, it's a very different character, very different circumstances with Stannis, <laughs> but um, still kind of the the same themes that we're dealing with. Do I do I choose my private loyalties, my family, or you know the the children because of my personal trauma that I've had with uh, children? I mean, Ned's personal trauma from Robert's Rebe Robert's rebellion informs his priorities so much um but that's what's interesting to me about ned is he, he's like got this philosophical legacy in a song of ice and fire that he passes on yes. to other characters george R. R. martin continues to bring back that conflict through characters like stannis and jamie and john who even gets a very you know, elusive julius caesar scene in um, right. a dance with dragons and these are all variations on the same theme, you know, all, all very complex, compelling characters with different systems of honor as a result of how they balance that conflict and competing priorities. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Ned Stannis parallels are intentional. I, I do love that Stannis doesn't show up on page as, as a character in a Game of Thrones. He's just always in the fringes of the narrative, just waiting in the wings to come in. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, and here's me kind of flexing my very small uh, Shakespearean uh, arms, most of the historical side, but of the Henry VI character waiting on the wings to come in when you have all these characters fighting uh, mm. the the Yorkists and, and the and Lancastrians fighting over the crown of England, but you have Henry VI who's in France for most of the time in exile, vaguely mm. connected to the Iron Throne or connected rather to the to the throne of England. And then he shows up and it's kind of game over for 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 the Yorkist cause and Richard the Third. So yeah. Again, not I'm not a Shakespeare guy, I'm more of a history he, guy. He was so. a very weak king in Shakespeare. I don't know about um Outside of Shakespeare, but that—that's a—I mean—I mean—that's like a good way to frame it, though, for you know, structurally speaking. And I th- well said, both of you. And I think on the question of these competing moral questions that divide all these characters, I think Varus reflects that so well because he thinks of himself, no doubt, as a truly just man in the way that Stannis thinks of himself. You can tell when Varus talks about it that he's doing it all for the peace and for the realm, and he has this far-sighted vision. But he's self-aware enough to say that such a man is also terrifying. Like when, when he speaks of the innocents who suffer in the Game of Thrones, he speaks as a man who regularly orders children's tongues removed. Yep. So, so he knows of what he speaks. And I think at some level, he's smart enough to be aware of his hypocrisy, but is just kind of forging ahead anyway, because he's invest, so invested and he's, you know, so convinced himself that he, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And that's, you know, speaking of innocents who suffer in the Game of Thrones, uh, it's worked so perfectly, of course, at the end of this chapter, the end of Ned's POV arc revolves around that question. That question is, he's defined his life and defined his story. And the last words of this chapter are offering him that choice once more. And I love that Varus brings up Princess Rhaenys at the end. That just, that cuts deep in so many mm. ways. It reminds Ned of, of course, of Robert's culpability in child murder and thus indirectly his own for supporting Robert and his reign. The fact that there was the Lannisters knocking down her door and destroying her child in her life parallels Jane Poole who also had her, her dork knocked down at the Tower of the Hand recently and will be really one of the primary innocents who suffer in the Game of Thrones as, as the series goes on. But above all, there's this, this haunting idea that this is where Rhaenys learned the difference between a kitten and a dragon. Mm. This, is, this is where she learned what Balerion looks like in reality versus in her stories. And that ties so beautifully into this book-long theme in A Game of Thrones of the innocence of songs and stories giving way to bloody, depressing realities. Rhaenys is basically Sansa here. And, and what Varus is saying to Ned is that you too have been culpable in destroying this innocence, that this innocence you're longing for and trying to preserve really doesn't exist. I would know. I had my dick and balls cut off when I was a child. I, I never had this childhood you're longing for, and maybe it doesn't really exist. But I think the question the Song of Ice and Fire focuses on is on what you do after that realization. That's why this is the theme of the first book in the series, so we can explore the aftermath for the rest of it. And the answer is not give up on mercy and trying to do the right thing. The answer is not become Littlefinger. Hmm. It's not Ned's error. It's Joffrey's. Joffrey is the one who screws up, not Ned. Mercy is never a mistake, if I may quote the man himself. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, that is fantastic. You're absolutely correct that mercy is never a mistake. And that is a central theme, both a Ned's storyline as well as the Song of Ice and Fire as a whole. And that transitions us pretty well into our foreshadowing groundwork section of the podcast, where we do have a lot of scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire set in prisons and the idea of mercy and justice are kind of intermingling there and also injustice and and mercilessness as well coming coming into the fore for sure this is chapter definitely feels like a template for martin's later prison chapters i was especially reminded of davos's third chapter in the storm of swords where he's in the cell underneath dragonstone 
very same similar imagery of, of being in the darkness and clinging to the light and hoping to escape. And Melisandre, as I said earlier, has a lot of parallels to Varys, and she, of course, shows up in that chapter to have a conversation with Davos that is, is similar in a lot of respects. A lot of themes come up in the same uh, ways as conversation between Varys and Ned. You can also see, I think, the influence in terms of the more vision quest chapters, the way mm -hmm. Ned kind of goes spiraling back through his life with these intense visions is, is similar to something like the House of the Undying. Mm -hmm. And I think you can really see the influence <clears throat> when Martin once more brings these two together, the vision quest with the prison chapters yeah. in The Forsaken, Aaron's release chapter from The Winds of Winter, which really pushes both of those in a direction even far beyond this chapter. Yeah, you can also see it in Bran as well and his vision spinning backwards in the uh, the Weirwood Cave and how Bran is kind of a prisoner of Blood Ravens. Not technically, but practically. It's similar in that he's stuck in the dark yeah. and Blood Raven has that whole speech about darkness is your mother's milk. Darkness will nurture you and make you strong, which is not remotely what it's doing for no, Ned. And I don't imagine it's going to do the same thing for Bran. Yeah, I, I love that this chapter is a, a template for chapters of its kind to come, like you said, with the more prison chapters with Davos and Theon and um, the Vision Quest chapters. But I love how... They're not the same, you know, it's it's like a template, but they're they're all variations on a theme and we, mm. we don't get a repeat of any of them. They're all different for the, the, the different characters that occupy them and the different place that they are in their arcs. And you can see that structurally, thematically. It's really cool. Agreed. I think the, the closest Martin gets to repeating this chapter, and it actually works really well as a parallel, is the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons. In which Varus again gives this big old villain-ish monologue uh, to, to a dying man, Kevon Lannister. Uh, it, it works differently because, of course, Varus is much further along in his plan at that yes. point. So, so in this chapter, he's just telling Ned, "Oh, you screwed up, you know, stage fourteen of my forty-point plan. How dare you?" <laughs> Whereas when you get to, the, by the time you get to the epilogue to dance, Varus is like, "All right, I'm at stage forty in my forty-stage right. plan. I'm about to start really taking off." So by that point, you can feel. I mean, Varus is not exactly happy in this scene. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like things are not going well for no. him right now. By the time you get by the time you get to the epilogue to dance, he's like he's almost giddy yeah. when he's telling. Well, not even giddy. He's like his voice gets deeper when he's telling Kevon about his his belief in Young Griff, and you can sense, oh, he's finally getting to say these things that he wanted to say, where he he doesn't really hear. Uh, so, as you say, Lawrence, it's repetition with variation. Right. Yeah. And in, in that chapter, it's it's just like everything's coming along pretty nicely for Kevin. It's like. You know, it's you're, you're wondering what's going to happen that makes this worthy of the epilogue, right. you know? Exactly. Tommen you're is constantly just, waiting for the... Yeah, Tom is just like talking about his kittens or whatever, and Kevin's going back to, <laughs> you know, nod off or whatever. And then Varys shows up, and it's like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> what, what I like about these chapters, too, is that um, Varys is talking to a dead man in both of them, but, mm -hmm. you know, Ned more figuratively, and then Kevin is the one that he kills. So that, that's an interesting thing that you pointed out there. Varus is very, like, apologetic to Kevin. Like, it, it's so, I'm, I'm so very sad that I have to kill you. Like, you're such a good man doing an admirable job, which is not not true. But it's sort of the same thematically in the sense that Varus is talking about he doesn't want Ned's blood. He doesn't want Ned to die. He needs Ned to survive in order for his greater plans to be fulfilled. But then when you get to him in A Dance with Dragons, he's like, well, you kind of need to die. Sorry, bro. Varus is a sorrowful right. man. He's, he's an assassin who will say, I am ever so sorry. Oh, so eloquently and mm -hmm. elegantly and, mm -hmm. you know, just tastefully, but he's still going to kill yeah. you. Yep. You kind of do imagine, though, with, in, in the epilogue from, from A Dance with Dragons, that Varus is actually kind of saying the truth. Like, he was wish that maybe Kevin would join with Aegon's cause, but realizes that he can't because of the circumstances. 
those circumstances, namely being that Kevin is a Lannister. Well, Varys isn't like Littlefinger. Right. He's not enjoying himself while doing this. But, mm-hmm. well, that might make us like Varys more than Littlefinger. It doesn't make it any easier to be on the other side of the crossbow. Yeah, that's really, really true. And kind of in that kind of same vein of Varys and Littlefinger, thank you for the transition, there's this ugly, bad, awful theory believed by stupid people which should probably die forever. And the reason why it should die forever is because George R. R. Martin specifically refuted it. And the theory goes as follows. Varys and Littlefinger are not adversaries in A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, they're working together and it's awesome and they're on the same side. And no, 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 they're not. They really, really are not working together. And you can kind of pick this up from the narrative itself, which has not stopped people from writing things about this theory. But George R. R. Martin himself confirmed this at a commission appearance at the Guadalajara Book Festival in 2016, where the interviewer asked George R. R. Martin, how would you describe Vars and Littlefinger's relationship? And George responded, adversarial. Both of them know a lot about the other one, including some very damaging things. So they're in essentially a stalemate because each one knows that if he revealed what he knows about the other one, then the other one would reciprocate and they would both be destroyed. So they're locked in a certain stalemate. I think Littlefinger has a better idea of what Varys wants than Varys has an idea of what Littlefinger wants. Do you, George? Do you actually think that Littlefinger has a better idea as the author of A Song of Ice and Fire? I don't know. Littlefinger is an agent of chaos who likes to be unpredictable, and he succeeds in that. So, another ugly, stupid theory in the trash bin, and I am happy. As always, sir, I know you're only happy when you're, you're throwing garbage into the bin. <laughs> Right, I mean... Never reci- never recycling because you're a good American. Absolutely. Right, and where's, I mean, you just gotta... Th- oh, go ahead. No, no, go Do your choke. No, I'm good. It's, it's passed? The time has passed? Okay. The time has passed. <laughs> uh, yeah, you just gotta think, what's more interesting to have the, yeah. your two primary villains... Your your two primary villains working together or against each other. And right. of course you want to have them be adversarial. It's just yeah. more interesting. Varus already has a partner. He has Illyrio. And their styles are just so completely different. And Littlefinger's moments of success so clearly work against Varus's overall goals. So yeah, this this notion never made sense to me. As as I think is suggested both in Martin's comment and in the text, they're kind of in a mutually assured destruction poise right. in terms of each other. Like Varus knows enough about Littlefinger to sink him, and Littlefinger knows enough about Varus to sink him. So as is suggested in the show, they're just kind of keeping an eye on each other for the moment. And we'll see how they react to each other's movements later in the text. That's going to be interesting. But yeah, and I never bought the idea that they were working together. That's 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 just the worst. Mm-hmm. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. It takes us into the discussion section of the episode, and this is where we really want to turn things over to Lord. Yes. So we want to talk about Shakespeare and influence, not just on Edward Fifteen, but on A Song of Ice and Fire in general. I am so excited and honored that you guys are letting me talk <laughs> about Shakespeare and A Song of Ice and Fire. I've been waiting for this moment for somebody to invite me and just let me ramble on their podcast <laughs> about Shakespeare and A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's finally happening. Um, Shakespeare is my passion, my joy, even before A Song of Ice and Fire. I, I came to love the bard from growing up acting in my local Shakespeare festival. Hmm. So... Yeah, I uh, I acted in youth play. I think I think I was Ophelia. I know I was Ophelia in Hamlet when I was ten because I remember oh, wow. memorizing the lines and I hated it at first, but then I loved it when we had opening night. And I also moved around a lot of set pieces, did tech work, all the grunt stuff that you do in theater. Um, so yeah, I, I got to know Shakespeare, you know, in a kind of more intimate way that most people do. Um, by the time I got to high school and English lit. So I was just psyched for it. Um, 
And then years later, as soon as I started watching Game of Thrones and reading A Song of Ice and Fire, I was finding Shakespeare's influence everywhere in the story Hmm. and started my Twitter account almost right away because I I just (laughs) had to start talking about it. Never been on Twitter before. I didn't know what it was, really. But I was going to talk about Shakespeare and A Song of Ice and Fire. So let's talk about it. Shakespeare and A Song of Ice and Fire. It's... I mean, Shakespeare's scope of influence in shaping the modern English language, literature, and culture is just massive. You can do an analysis of Shakespearean influence in most great works of literature and find quite a lot. So, especially when we're looking at an author like George R. R. Martin, who loves to name so many of his influences and talks about how they manifest in his work, we want to take a very close look about what he has to say about Shakespeare. George has confirmed in multiple interviews and appearances that he loves Shakespeare, particularly the history plays, (laughs) which informed his interest in the Wars of the Roses and inspired A Song of Ice and Fire. And now, first of all, citing the histories as your favorite Shakespeare plays, I mean, just wow, you know, (laughs) I consider myself an intellectual. My favorite Shakespeare play is King Lear, which, you know, it's kind of different. Most people say Hamlet or Macbeth, but I'm like, oh, I like King Lear. And (laughs) um, it's really good. It's really good. You should see the latest uh, film adaptation um, with Anthony Hopkins. It's Mm. so good. Um, But just saying that the histories are your favorite Shakespeare plays, that, that is another level of intellectual. Of course, we have to say that Julius Caesar and Richard III are tragedies, officially, not histories, but they do lean more historical than the high tragedies like Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear and Othello. And I think George is talking about the overall influence of the Henriade on his work when he's talking about Hmm. his preference for the history plays. And we absolutely can see the influence of those um, of the Henriade in a Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm going to refer to a scholarly quote right now because the scholars say it much better than I can <laughs> with their beautiful words. Um, this is something that A.D. AD Nuttall said in his book, Shakespeare the Thinker, about the plot progression of Shakespeare's Henriad. The plot progression of Shakespeare's Henriad is founded in personality clashes interwoven expertly with political antagonisms, one action interrupting, overlapping, reinforcing, or retarding another. We become aware that history has a multiple momentum and is imperfectly controlled by the most powerful persons concerned. Hmm. Now that, you know, especially that history having a multiple momentum and being imperfectly controlled by the most powerful persons concerned, that... That is a song of ice and fire right there. Absolutely. It dovetails perfectly with what we've been talking about a lot in our last two episodes and what I brought up earlier, the political and the personal struggles intertwining so that the family dramas explode onto the landscape. This is this this internal personal drama is becoming physical and then becoming political. And as you say, o- overlapping and reinforcing each other. Again, Varus alludes to that with Stannis versus Renly, that these personality conflicts between the Baratheon brothers are going to have these, these, these massive historical actions. But at the <laughs> same time... Neither Shakespeare nor Martin is advancing like a purely great man theory of history yeah. or of drama. Mm-hmm. That there are so many moments of chance and moments where the powerful people are dismayed. Like the execution of Ned Stark, where, where most people on, on the high table in the dais of power when that happens are, are just shocked and running over to grab Joffrey and stop it. And like very publicly dismayed right. in a way that they usually don't allow themselves to be. Because this, this, this one moment changed everything. I also think it's interesting that when I read A Song of Ice and Fire and I look at it 
to the real history. So like I said, I'm more of the history side as opposed to the, the theater side of, of the house that I see George has talked about how the Wars of the Roses inspired a song of ice and fire. And I wouldn't want to dispute George necessarily, but I see more evidence that I see Shakespeare's version of the Wars of the Roses having a much stronger influence on a song of ice and fire and especially on a game of Thrones. than I see the actual history having influence. Certainly. Yeah. Go, no, go ahead. No, okay, all right. Sorry for interrupting you. No, you're good. I, no, I agree with that. Um, well, I wish I could agree with, more with it, knowing knowing the history. I'm actually less about the history and more <laughs> about the literature. It would be, I, I, I keep meaning to really delve into the Wars of the Roses, the historical side, so that I can get the real history side to complement um, the literature side from uh, Shakespeare's Henriad. But yeah, I think what's really interesting about how Shakespeare wrote the history plays um what's interesting about it is that even though he he did write them to kiss Tudor ass as George <laughs> says in one interview he also wrote them with a, a perspective outside of Elizabethan Tudor society you know he hmm. he's able to have multiple multiple perspectives in a play and you know we feel that obviously in a song of ice and fire which has so many point of views and how Shakespeare was able to do that in a play, which is you know, much fewer words. And, hmm. well, obviously, you don't have a narrative. You, you you have the different characters speaking their parts. But, yeah, it's amazing how he could assume so many different perspectives in the histories. And I, <laughs> I think that's also partially what, what inspired George R. R. Martin. Yeah. For sure. But I think when we break down exactly how Shakespeare's influence works, it's not necessarily in terms of style like it's not necessarily martin trying to write like shakespeare and the way where if you look at brand storm of swords chapters he's very clearly trying to write like Tolkien. right yeah mm-hmm. and he's also not, oh, and he's also not trying to just do history pastiche either i mean he's he's obviously inspired by historical events and especially by historical events as the influence theater but he's also weaving this into an existing narrative structure that he has in mind that he's imagining as he's writing a song of ice and fire too. So all of those things are, are, are factoring in George isn't writing sonnets or straight history except for fire and blood in the world, in the world of ice and fire. But you know, it, it's fun when we consider the influences on a song of ice and fire because there are myriad myriad influences on the books, but Shakespeare and Tolkien are probably the top, two influences that George has in writing these books. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned Tolkien because um, there's this cool quote from Balticon 2016 mm-hmm. where somebody asks uh, George R. R. Martin about the influence of Shakespeare on his work and he replies he's sort of a looming presence you know. <laughs> you can dare to dream of writing like Tolkien but no one can dream to write like Shakespeare. I remember when you so, said that. Oh, you were there. I was there, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. So, I mean, no one can even dream to write like Shakespeare. It's just no one can dream to have that massive influence. And um, I think it also speaks to his modesty that he starts with that. I mean, I we, we see so much Shakespeare influence in his works, and I, I feel like there's more... Um, quotes about him, quotes from him talking about Tolkien's influence, 
directly than Shakespeare. You know, it's it's not like he really wants to say, well, this is how Shakespeare influenced me here, and th- this is the character that I'm I'm trying to draw inspiration in um, this storyline. You know, it's it's almost like his his modesty prevents him from divulging more information about <laughs> the influence because he doesn't he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to go to a place where he's telling people, you know, I I dream to write like Shakespeare, and this is going to be my mm-hmm. legacy on the English language yep. and, and, and literature, because who, who can? It's um, really difficult to try and aspire to that. And why is that? What is it that makes Shakespeare so head and shoulders looming above everything else in the English language? Oh, goodness. That's that's a whole series of... Uh, <laughs> that, that's a whole podcast in itself, honestly. But in a nutshell, um, you know, Shakespeare's plays, they expanded the dramatic potential of plot, language, characterization. There's this other great quote from um, literary scholar Harold Bloom, who says, Mm. before Shakespeare, there was characterization. After Shakespeare, there were characters, men and women capable Mm. of change with highly individual personalities. You know, we were talking about soliloquies earlier. Before, like in classical theater and literature of the Greek and Roman era, in a Greek tragedy, these soliloquies were used to deliver information and events to the audience. But Shakespeare evolved that to to have soliloquies explore characters' minds and their inner conflict. You know, uh, I remember when... I took what we had. I've had my first literature class in eighth grade or whatever, and we were talking about the man versus sus, man versus society, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus the supernatural. Was that one? <laughs> and, and the man versus self paradigm and man versus self. Shakespeare did that. Like that was his thing that he invented. Like nobody was <laughs> doing that before Shakespeare. Um, so yeah, I mean, we have the, the Greeks and Romans. The their tragedies represent men and women is aging and dying, going on epic adventures, reconciling their relationship and to society and the gods, but their characters is their character is still essentially unchanging. Shakespeare takes it to the next level by looking inward instead of outward. Characters <laughs> develop and evolve as they reconceive themselves. And Shakespeare has had a huge impact on other classic literature, including William Faulkner, who George cites as one of his favorite authors, and who he draws that um, human heart in conflict with itself as his favorite theme to write on. And that idea traces right back to Shakespeare. I love what you were saying about his his great innovation being the suggestion of real internalization and the capability of change. It, it kind of reminds me of the, the classic divide between DC and Marvel comics, and this is, you know, an overly broad <laughs> comparison between the two, but it was always said, like, you know, DC has superheroes that are the this kind of untouchable ideal. They're the modern Greek gods, and Marvel writes characters about people who are like you. Right. Mm-hmm. Marvel, Marvel has Spider-Man, the characters who live in the real world and have problems and foibles, and they're not lifted above you. And obviously, there's a place for both those kinds of storytelling. So, yeah, it's and it's interesting you talk about that impact of Shakespeare on pop culture because Shakespeare is pervasive, not just in literature, but in the movies, in the comic books. Um, It's literally just everywhere. And when we read A Song of Ice and Fire, there are certain chapters and character arcs that feel distinctly Shakespearean, as you've pointed out before on the cast and as we've been talking about on this episode. And so it's, you know, it's interesting to think about what triggers that connection. Um, 
poetic language, first of all. We, uh, I remember you guys talking about the iambic flow of the dream sequence in mm. Eddard 10, was it? Yep. And also, mm-hmm. as Eliana pointed that out on Girls Gone Canon, I think that was her find, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Right. It was. We, we, we cheerfully blatantly stole it. No shame. No shame. <laughs> yeah, but that lyrical verse adds a whole new diven- dimension and cues us into this dream world that we're experiencing, which is um, a, a really powerful way that George R. R. Martin uses that. And then, of course, we talk about these intimate two, two-person scenes, which make up the bulk of a chapter, like in this chapter or the Ned and Cersei cha- chapter. All highly character explorative, yet minimalistic in structure, and you can imagine it easily staged. Uh, George R. R. Martin also does a lot of borrowing of symbols, themes, and motifs, especially ominous portents, mm-hmm. uh, like the comet in A Game of Thrones, inspired by the comet in Julius Caesar, as we mentioned, or those juxtapositions of opposites um, in Romeo and Juliet, as we've seen. Um, and we also have these big theatrical events that George uses, which I I love the whole feast gone wrong motif. It's <laughs> so ambitious because it's what you do. It's what Shakespeare uses in a play to bring all the characters together to the stage to kill them all or, or to bear witness to a highly pivotal plot point. It's. So daring that George uses this huge theatrical ploy in a novel and has the guts to pull it off, not once, but multiple times. (laughs) I can't even think of anybody else who does that in literature. If if you guys listening to the cast can think of it, just, I don't know, let me know, um, tweet it, because I'd be really interested (laughs) to think about that. For sure. It almost like when I was a kid, I would read the Redwall books over and over. And of course, those are for kids, but like... The, the feasts and celebrations in those books would just kind of exist for themselves. It's just like, oh, now you read about them having a nice time for five pages and eating all their food. <laughs> and then, and then the event is over. And like, there's, there's one book in the series where they're having a big celebration and, and feast and they like allow this outsiders, like mummers troupe, like these singers and, and actors in to, to entertain them during the feast. And then as the feast goes on, everyone starts feeling like druggy and semi-conscious. And then it's revealed they've all been drugged by the, the troop and they're here to kidnap their kids and make off with them. It's like the one feast, one celebration in the series that has this real darkness <laughs> oh. to it and these real sudden consequences. And going back to it, it feels very Red Wedding-esque oh, neat. Or, or Purple Wedding-esque. This, this, this great feast set piece that goes horribly wrong. And I, I agree with you. That's something that Martin does so well. And yeah, I had never made that connection to Shakespeare, but right. yeah, he, he definitely loves that as well. Right, because you have the, the three that I think of in Shakespeare specifically are um, – Titus Andronicus, mm-hmm. uh, with a mm-hmm. pie fed to Tamara, Queen of the Goths, which has her sons in it, which we also see a very nice allusion to in uh, Game of Thrones in season six. And, you know, also also in the books um, with with the pie uh, fed to, well, well, we, we, we don't know, do we? It's just kind of alluded to. I think we can say at this point, Frey, Frey Pies is pretty much Yeah, canon. Frey Pies is canon. George kind of ish confirmed it in 2012 in a, in a convention appearance but yeah so we have we have the, the three big feast scenes i'm thinking of in shakespeare are in titus andronicus with uh the pies fed to tamara queen of the goths and uh the feast in the feast scene in macbeth where uh they're having this big celebration feast for macbeth being king and then he sees Banquo's ghost and then in um Timon of Athens a play I don't know that well um but there is also a a feast at the start of the play that goes incredibly wrong so those are 
examples <laughs> from Shakespeare of the feast celebration gone wrong. And then characters, individual storylines, which seem to position characters in the narrative similarly to characters in Shakespeare, and which also might echo similar motifs, themes, and character conflicts. Ned and Brutus, which we talked about earlier, is a big one that we were able to flesh out in this po- in, in this episode. Mm. But of course, Shakespeare's Brutus isn't the be-all, end-all of Shakespearean influences in Ned's arc. In fact, Ned also shares similarities with Julius Caesar himself, and even Christ, actually. They're both figures who are, they're all figures who are betrayed, murdered, and deified after death. But, you know, that's a whole discussion <laughs> for another day. Lots, lots of interesting things to talk about there, though. And then we also have Tyrion and Richard III. Mm. Uh, yeah, George cited Richard III as his other favorite Shakespeare play. And I, I, I think he's alluded to some similarities or, or some in, intention in drawing Tyrion as um, drawing Tyrion with Richard III influences. They're both complex characters that hover between comedy and horror. And even though Tyrion doesn't start off in the same place as Richard III, you, you definitely feel him going there in a dance with dragons and kind of delighting in painting himself as the villain. For sure. As Vara says, these are all roles we play. And I think there is a little meta nod to that where he's saying like, you know, all, all my characters can play these roles of other characters, other historical figures, other, you know, Shakespeare characters I love. I can have my characters play those roles, so to speak. Like, you know, it's not just playing the mummer or the knight or the hands king. It's also playing the Richard III. That's an archetype that Tyrion can step into if he feels like. Right. Correct me from correct me from Lauren, but also I think George has talked about how talked about how Richard III has a, has a hump. He's portrayed as having a hump by by the, mm-hmm. by the Tudor sources, and I believe that's in Shakespeare himself, right? Or that's in Richard III. Yes, yes, he is deformed in Richard III. I, I can't remember if if the hump is... Yeah, I, I think that's something that's in the actual play. It's one of those things I, I, I can't remember how much is described in the text itself, but he's definitely deformed. Yeah, it's sort of the same way that Tyrion is actually deformed in the play. Like George has talked about how Richard III, when they dug up his body out of the uh, the parking lot in uh, in England... They're like, hey, this guy actually doesn't have a hump at all. Like, he was actually pretty normal. Like, this was just Tudor propaganda. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have features of Tyrion, too, where when he shows up, like, he's the demon monkey man, according to the commoners in King's Landing. He has all of these evils that are associated with his deformity in the same way that in Tudor propaganda, like, Richard III was this awful, horrible person. And that awfulness of Richard III was symbolized in, oh, my God, he's physically deformed god has certainly cursed this man the same way that gods have cursed Tyrion or cursed tywin in the in, in tywin's opinion of Tyrion. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i i think that in that same balticon interview that i was talking about he mentioned how he was having some fun drawing Tyrion's character within the the play in bravos mm-hmm. yeah and right? mercy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And how that is different from the Tyrion that we actually see. And he's having some fun drawing from Shakespeare's Richard III and thinking about that in the context of what actually happened in history. For sure. And that's also something we see with Stannis when the one of the songs of the Purple Wedding is casting with like this classic evil <laughs> uncle figure who looked down at Joffrey and wanted to steal his throne. So since this is a Stannis theme podcast yes. in general, what, what, what about our beloved king? <laughs> what about our beloved what is, what king? Is he sync, well, what does he sync up to? Right. Um, 
I think that there are some definite Macbeth parallels um, or, or some Macbeth vibes going on um, with Stannis, it, but it's not in the way that you think. Uh, hmm. what, what I love about how George takes these characters and, and um, infuses Shakespearean influence into them is that it's not just to make them, you know, a Shakespeare character come to life on the page. He, he makes it different. So Stannis and Macbeth share some some very unique parallels. And what I like is how George cues us into the similarities between a storyline that he's borrowing from another work of literature and a character that he's putting on the page in his own story by using similar motifs, language, themes. Um, a lot of that is in Stannis's arc with the magic, the prophecy, the presence of, of the witch so yeah, what's interesting about Stannis and Macbeth is that their stories are similar enough to you know make us think that there's a parallel going on because Macbeth is a lord and highly competent military commander who aspires to higher office. So is Stannis. Uh, Lady Macbeth encourages her husband to consult the witches upon hearing their prophecy. Lady Selyse does the same with Stannis to speak with the Red Woman, and the witches help Macbeth along his quest for the throne. So does Melisandre with Stannis. And also, Macbeth commits murder that escalates in moral revulsion, like Stannis does. And I, I think that that's allegedly. the most... Mm, allegedly. <laughs> that's true. I guess revulsion... I'm, I'm allegedly, if you decide to that's be just, wrong. It's a shtick. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Revulsion is like a, you know, word that can mean different things to different people. I mean, if you look at the people that... Stannis has been charged with quote unquote murdering. Sure, I get you. But um, I don't know. I, I think what's really interesting about that parallel is that in Shakespeare's play, what, you know, what, what becomes really important is the study of the, the idea of the psychological torment that Mac, that Macbeth inevitably endures because of what he's done. And that's another reason why I'm really excited about Stannis' storyline. It's not so much his battle um, that he's 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 going... It's, it's not so much the battle at Winterfell or the battles to come, but like the battle with himself. Hmm. Again, it's that man versus self thing. And it's yeah. it'll be hard to depict because we don't have a Stannis POV, but it, it's still interesting looking from the outside... Um, through Davis's POV and how he's not getting a lot of sleep and he's, you know, worn thin. His appearance is completely changed. You know that there's something going on deep below the surface and it, it that echoes a lot of what Macbeth endures too. Right. And even, even beyond that, I think that there is more influence than is even intended. The literary subconscious sure. is a very powerful thing. Yeah. Shakespeare has been so influential that even when you're borrowing from someone else, you're often borrowing from him by proxy. Like, we're talking about his influence on pop culture. The filmmaker Akira Kurosawa took so much from him, especially when you get to something like Ran, which mirrors your beloved King Lear in so many ways. And Martin takes so much from Kurosawa in A Song of Ice and Fire in terms of character archetypes mm -hmm. and, and mood and certain plot points. But also, is he borrowing from George Lucas, who also mm -hmm. borrowed a shit ton from Kurosawa and Shakespeare? So it, it can be difficult to break down these these lines of analysis. But as you say both in our own reading of the text and in Martin's comments, you can see Shakespeare as this general guiding influence, sometimes a specific influence on given characters, but also just this, this keystone. You get the sense that Shakespeare is one of the artists that 
inspired George R. R. Martin to start writing in the first place. Every bit as much as the kind of pulp magazines he'd write to as a kid. Yeah, that's 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 a great point. And I know I, know I haven't said a lot, and that's okay because, like I said at the very beginning, I'm going to get my learn on. And hell yeah, did I get my learn on this episode? So I think that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Edit 15. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed talking about this. And thanks to Lauren Shakespeare of Thrones for coming on. And that's really awesome. Like, I learned so much. It's great. So where can we find you, your website, your Twitter, and the other projects? And what upcoming projects do you have in store for yeah, us? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I You can find me at Shakes of Thrones on Twitter. I'm also at ShakespeareofThrones.com, which is where I post my essays. You can read more about the Ned and Brutus parallels there in a recent essay that I wrote. And I also have a YouTube channel with a couple of videos of my essays in case you like to listen more. You can search for Shakespeare of Thrones on YouTube. Uh, upcoming projects? Let's see. I am going to be presenting, not at Ice and Fire Con, not at Ice and Fire Con, but at Con of Thrones in July. And I'm working on a few panels with some friends. I'm going to be on a panel with LML about the stolen child in Song of Ice and Fire, looking at instances of children who are uh, taken away or um, even whose childhoods were taken away and um, drawing some parallels between that. For for myself, I I know that uh, LML and some of the other people who are on the panel are going to be looking more at a broader folklore myth perspective, but I'll be taking a look at uh, the influence of Midsummer Night. I'll be taking a look at the influence of a Midsummer Night's Dream and the Changeling Child and that, so... Look for an essay coming up on that. Eventually, I'm going to write about Tyrion and Richard III. It's going to be a big yes. one, but so that's going to be much further down the road. But glad to hear. Yeah, it. yeah. Thanks for having me on, you guys. It's been a pleasure. It's a real pleasure for us too. Uh, thanks for coming on. We always love having great guests that bring specific uh, insight and experience like you do. So as always, guys, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play and review Find Our Fine Podcast. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already. You heard our question at the beginning of the episode. If you uh, join our Patreon for $10 or more a month, you'll get the opportunity to ask us those questions in our weekly episodes. That's at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Hit us up at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So... Join us next week for a Game of Thrones Catlin 9, where we meet the most loathsome villain in a Song of Ice and Fire, Joyous Aaron Ford. Oh, wait, fuck. Am I, are my notes wrong? God, they are wrong. Uh, oh, yeah, right. It's Walter Frey. My, my mistake here. We're actually meeting Walter Frey. Jo- Joyous Aaron Ford is barely been. I don't think she's even mentioned by name in the next chapter, but she's there all the same. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Lauren for coming on. It's a lot of fun. And we will see you guys next week. 